0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we're recording this edition of Red Flag Radio in pretty exceptional circumstances in the middle of a crisis that has um, gone from peak to peak basically um, and a situation in which revolutionary socialists like many people in the world are working out uh, what are we going to do in the face of this crisis and so this show we're just going to be focusing on um, COVID-19 the impact politically basically this is not a medical advice show so please don't uh, take any advice from any of us on that front. You should do your own research. Obviously, I'm joined by Liam Ward. We're in different rooms because you don't want more. We don't want the wards uh, to come <laughs> into contact with each other, infect each other. That would be terrible, um, or anyone. So we're doing this uh, using Zoom technology. So if it sounds a little less fluid than normal, that's why. So Liam Ward is producing the show, and we're joined by. Louise O'Shea, who's been on the show before, and um, for the first time on Red Flag Radio, Sandra Bloodworth, who is um, former editor of the Marxist Left Review, a writer, historian and socialist activist that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. Um, I would also say before we get into it, we're recording this podcast uh, at about 7.15. The time is now on Tuesday, the 17th of March. I'm happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, but mm. things may have changed. I'm sure no one is really celebrating, but things may have changed, obviously, by the time you get to listen to us. So we will be talking about how things are now. And the rapidity of this crisis is quite staggering. It has honestly felt to me, even today, like today was a week long or two weeks of normal politics in one day. And things obviously are changing very quickly. So here we are and we'll do our best. Um, So let's start with sort of where we are right now, what's been happening. Um, Sandra, can you give a bit of an overview of kind of where things are? And we're focused really mostly in Australia because we're an Australian podcast um, with the crisis and the kind of political response that's Mm. been developing and the kind of obvious points um, in that so far.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you get a sense of the depth of the crisis already that's been caused by the Morrison government's absolute, complete lack of any empathy with people, just like in the bushfires, totally incapable of responding on a humane level, uh, more worried about business profits and f- shoring all that up. So I think you can see the depth of it, that today we've had 2,500 doctors sign on to a Call to the government to step it up these are the people who traditionally have been the whole support base politically socially for liberal governments and they're absolutely up in arms that we have and it, it's absolutely such a reg- um, illustration i think the crisis around the virus has brought out everything about capitalism why we say capitalism can't provide for humans and has to be overthrown when you think about How people in Wuhan and all through Hubei and other cities in China suffered being locked down, dying in their thousands, terrible conditions. And the whole argument was, might be draconian, it's necessary. Australia had a travel ban against anyone trying to get here, Um, and so we have time to prepare. And what have they done? They've done nothing. We have we've got all these people who need testing. The doctors are saying. Test, test, test. Mm -hmm. They only started a few days ago setting up testing clinics and then when they put some money in, 100 testing clinics for the whole of Australia just as the level of um, people being worried, people actually coming in positive is escalating. So just as that's starting to happen, doctors are actually finding they have to restrict even more who they are prepared to test because there's not enough equipment, Doctors haven't been provided with any protective equipment. I knew of a doctor in a hospital last a a few days ago and people were being tested positive. No doctor, no staff in the hospital could be given a mask because there just aren't any. The most simple preventative methods to try to slow the crisis, the, the spread of the virus down to protect people and all the rest of it. And so... And you just look at the hypocrisy of Morrison that, you know, was on display in such, you know, equal proportions during the fire that they they had the travel ban on China and well before Italy was an epicentre, they had South Korea was an epicentre and they just would not put a travel ban on there because, of course, it's more of a trading partner and they're so worried about bosses' profits because China's been closed down. So, you know, they've got bands on everywhere. They're talking about the crisis. On the other hand, they're saying, you know, until last Friday, Morrison was saying, everything's great, people. We're going to go fine. Just go about your business. Yeah, go to the football. And he, um, and the Andrews Labour government is no better. That people were flown here from Italy, a country, everyone locked down, people not even allowed to leave their houses, and the Grand Prix drivers and everyone brought here from that epicenter to Australia and it wasn't until people uh, actually tested positive had been wandering around the city staying in hotels co- possibly contaminating people on the on the track that drivers started making a fuss publicly and th- eventually they were actually forced by public opinion to close it down after hundreds and hundreds of people had gathered at the gates so to, to go into the thing and then they're all being told no we're not allowed in because They're banning us, and you'd have to think that some of the reason for the delay was that Grand Prix, but also Morrison's evangelical lunatic Mm -hmm. uh, right-wing church, the Hillsong, they had a mass gathering over the weekend, which I see they kept quite quiet in the end, but um, as soon as that was over, it was like, oh, now nobody can meet. People got to do this, that, and the other. But, of course, while they're locking everything down, they will not close down workplaces and things and they will not provide the money that's needed for workers to be able to go into quarantine if they're needed. So, again, it's another element in which the virus is probably spreading much more than we know because people simply are not in an economic circumstance to do it. Now, presumably we might talk about some of the details of the economic package, if you like, in a separate sort of, um, you know, Mm. put that all together. At the moment, I think putting it in the context of how, We've got a system that nobody that has any power will do anything unless there's profits to be made out of it and you can't turn that around suddenly even when some of the people in the ruling class can see they've got a human catastrophe on their hands and they can't actually turn the system around to provide for people. So while they're spending billions of dollars subsidising the fossil fuel industry, giving more tax cuts to the damn uh, corporations, they're saying that no, 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 Workers, Most workers are being told they'll only have to use up their sick leave and they'll only get any kind of compensation if they are found positive, which is just so inadequate. So, you know, I think my feeling at the moment is that we're in a really quite dangerous situation, not to be, you know, just a uh, scaremongering, but we have to face up to the fact that capitalist governments and especially right-wing ideologues like Morrison simply cannot respond to the crises that we're seeing, one after the other on top of each other, which is now all this is going to be followed by the economic crisis, that um, they simply cannot uh, respond. Yeah. So we're in a a much worse situation than we
0: ought to be, even under capitalism. And that seems to be the case internationally as well. I mean, I know I said we would focus on Australia, but it it is striking just how... um, how many elements of the Australian response are uh, very, very similar to those of Boris Johnson, the Tory prime minister in in Britain, and Mm. um, Donald Trump, obviously, in America, just being completely uh, callous, wantonly callous about the whole response, and also just seems to be guided by, um, you know, people who want, What's best for capitalism above everything else, and I guess Louise, when we're thinking about sort of where this crisis has come from, and people can just think, "Oh, well, it's just," uh, it could go in the category of a natural disaster. You know, it's a virus. Um, it was unpredictable that this virus would be so hard to to um, contain. That people have tried their best to do that, but it, you know, it's just very un- a very unfortunate situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would you say to that kind of analysis?
2: Well, obviously, there is a natural element to it. It is a, a virus, it's uh, not a member of the capitalist class. But um, <laughs> the conditions in which this virus takes hold in the human population is, and how that unfolds, is very much to do with the type of society that. We have and I think that explains a lot of the uh, anxiety that people have in the face of this crisis and it's not just the immediate response that Sandra just talked about that is thoroughly inadequate and people can see is not not driven um, first and foremost by pe- people's health but by other considerations, mostly economic, but also the um, the background to it as well. The fact that the health system has been run down over many decades And that's despite the fact that consistently people report to surveys that funding for um, health and education that they see as the most important um, priorities or should be the most important priorities for government, um, and yet the health system is um, progressively run down. So the number of hospital beds we have per head of the population today is half of what it was in the late 1970s, um, reflecting that um, gradual erosion of the facilities and the capacity to care for people. Um, and so then when a, a situation like this arises, nobody has any confidence that, um, that the authorities are going to be able to deal with it adequately and then they see in countries where it's more advanced that that's exactly what's happening, even in countries with comparable health systems to Australia, um, and they panic and they don't trust the authorities. And, um, you know, even like the doctors speaking out now, that's important, but, you know, it's not been the doctors that have really fought the uh, you know they've uh, much more supported the liberals that have been responsible for more of the cuts over the years and so it's a it's a bit of fruit of the priorities of the society we live in Um, and you know I think that's what a a lot of um, the government's response is with an eye to that because on the one hand, you know they don't say we're putting profits. At, you know we think it's more important. The Grand Prix goes ahead, and we can all have our champagne in our tents. That the Grand Prix, we think that's more important than your health. They all say, you know, public, um, people's health and lives is the most important thing. But nobody believes them because there's just no history of them of them putting. Um, putting those priorities first, and I think there's a limit to how much they want to stress that that should be the priority of society because that can start to undermine the ideology of capitalism that says every every consideration needs to be weighed up against the, uh, the economy, and that, of course, is a euphemism for profit. So, you know, the debate about climate change, oh, well, yes, um, maybe maybe there's a problem, but, you know, is uh, our alternative um forms of energy economically viable, as if this is, should be a consideration that we even um, think about when we're facing the destruction of the planet. Same in this case, like when they're talk- talking about should schools be shut down to try and contain the spread of the disease, they talk about, well, we've got to think about the consequences of that or the people it will take out of work and what that will do to the economy. But you know that all of that is thoroughly manageable. People to get taken out of work, they can have their wages paid um, anyway, either by their employer or by the government. You know, like n- none of these are, are problems that can't be solved. But they can't be solved within the economic logic of capitalism. And I think the government and the um, bosses are concerned about um, about giving in to the idea that health should come before any of those considerations.
0: I think one of the things that happens is the economy is talked about as if it is an economy for everyone. And I think that's the same in in Mm. the response to the crisis. And more and more, you know, there was a head of the Small Business Council was on the drum just now saying, you've got to think about this. We're all in this together. If small businesses go under, it's your jobs. And it's that same thing. Sort of on a larger scale with the economy, in inverted commas, that if the economy crashes, then we're all in it together and you're all going to lose out. So we need to save the economy. Otherwise, everyone is um, kind of fucked by it. But quite clearly, um, it's one end of the economy if you put it on a scale between the people who, the haves and the have nots, the rich and poor, the massive inequality gap that exists internationally. That's exactly the same as what happened in 2008 when uh, there's a crash and there's still billions of dollars and now um, with this crisis, trillions so far that has been pumped into saving the stock exchange um, internationally in various places and now in Australia as well. The idea of we need to save business and that has been talked about in fact, probably if you looked at the at the if you did a sort of search of the terms that politicians have used, I reckon they've said saved business more than they've said saved lives in the course of their announcements. And the very first thing was the um, the stimulus package was the first thing that they basically announced in response. So, Sandra, do you want to talk a bit about some of that economic logic? Or it doesn't? Mm. It's not logical for us, but. the logic of the system in that way.
1: Well, I agree. I can't remember hearing anyone say anything about lives in all the discussions with anyone, you know, other than community activists and people who are worried about lives. This morning, Anna Bly, who actually was a left-winger when I was involved in um, fighting the right-wing Bielke-Peterson government in the late 70s in Queensland, she's now some spokesperson for the banking industry. And she was making out that, you know, oh, no, we're going to be so caring, we're going to be letting people do this, that and the other. And it was really clear from the people texting in that no one believed her, no one believes that any of these corporations, which was exposed in the Royal Commission. But but again, as she was finishing, she said, oh, well, we're all in this together, business and government. And I thought that just sums up the whole thing. So if you look at the stock exchange, I think it's interesting to look at too because all the language around these things, they just talk about the volatility, you know. So what does this volatility represent? It represents greedy, profit-mongering, self-centred 1% or a bit more of the society that rely for all the money they're gambling with on the stock exchange, basically gambling with people's lives, with um, you know, um, trying to make a buck out of the crisis a lot of the time. And it's just like it was when the Great Depression started in 29. So people sell off their stocks because they know that the, the companies that got shares in aren't going to keep making much profits. But then as soon as the stocks go down, the volatility is just the greed and the gambling that, oh, they're now cheap, we'll buy, buy them up. And so we're meant to think that, this is just sort of unmanageable. That, like in any rational society, with what's going on, the billions and trillions that they are gambling with on the stock market would be turned to actually providing all the things that everyone is so far behind in providing. Like even the sanitizers uh, for hand, you know, for cleanliness and that. The chemist in the hospital the other day told me that um, they can't they they've been told they won't get sanitizers for weeks because they're running they've run out of the ingredients for it now governments like morrison u s everywhere people with so much power money corporations they could have just said you've had tax cuts for a decade we're taking some of that back now you're not entitled to it and you you can you know wait. but instead what have they done they the two point four billion dollars that morrison announced with great fanfare there's about 500 million dollars of that is already allocated to the budget for health so it's actually less than two billion which is absolute peanuts in the 13th largest economy in the in the world um, the 30 million dollars on the communication most of what they do with that has no actual concrete information in it and some of it's actually misleading most of the time and if you compare that with $45 million they spent last year, I think it was, recruit, on a recruiting campaign to get people into the defence forces, mm-hmm. promising, you know, people who might be sent to fight and die that they'll have a wonderful life in the, in the defence forces. Um, and, like, every time they talk about it, it's about tax cuts, waiving uh, charges on industry, um, and none of it is tied to demands that this means that workers have to be kept on. And if they have to be laid off because they can't operate or because they have to be quarantined or there's a lockdown, they have to be paid their wages. That's what the money is for. Nothing. It's just about these companies staying afloat and too bad for the mass of the working class. The New South Wales government has um, now declared a $2.3 billion thing as well, and only $700 million of that is on health. And, again, it's all handouts to business. And, like, the way they go on about welfare people and handouts and all the rest of it, as soon as their business mates are in any trouble, the handouts just are incredible. The billions of dollars they'll hand out in tax cuts with no strings attached. Like, they don't have their um, waters, you know, the waters in their suburbs tested to see if they're taking too many drugs and they're not being... um, put on welfare cards so that everyone can make sure they only spend the money on what they want. So, and, you know, at the one, same time, Aboriginal communities where everyone knows they are so much more at risk than the rest of the population, they're getting virtually no assistance left to to die, basically. And uh, you can't help thinking that there is an element of what the, some of the British Tories talked about in um, Britain that as far as they're concerned... If it spreads everywhere, it'll just wipe out a whole lot of useless people. We're going into a crisis anyway. There'll be mass unemployment and as long as we hold on, we continue to make our profits and we lay the basis to rebuild our, you know, our businesses because Morrison keeps saying, as does Trump, oh, you know, it'll only be a few months down the road and it'll be a boom again. We'll be back. That's what they're hoping for. But the trouble is they are dragging the system down into such an incredible crisis. A lot of the economists are now starting to say it could well be like the 1930s, where it goes so deep, and you can see what's happening. They're offering, they're cutting the interest rates in a whole lot of places. You actually have to pay to put leave a lot of money in the bank. That's and nobody will um, invest. Like, and that's going to be worse now because they don't can't guarantee that they can make profits. So all the long drawn out, going ongoing. Um, you know, sluggishness in the system that Australia had more or less uh, escaped for a long time because of our massive immigration camp, uh, program since t- 2008 now means that um, there's not much slack in the system and even when they try to offer people in, or virtually interest-free at loans to invest and do something their attitude is no we'd rather hoard it and go and live in our mansions and everywhere because we've accumulated so much wealth nobody can touch us anyway mm. um so if ever there was an argument that you know that the whole economic system mitigates against anyone being able to use the wealth in such a incredible society apart from the you know, the defence industries, which I haven't even mentioned, um obvious waste of money that could be basically closed down. Who's going to be able to, you know, mm. use the bloody uh, equipment while and keep building it when uh, people are dying and they've got a, such a humanitarian crisis on their hands? But, of course, none of that is going to happen and uh, they would prefer, rather than pay anything to our side of the class fence, that it all goes to their big business um, Bosses, and I agree with you, Ros, they, they all the time try to make out that they're just doing it for people's good, but actually you can tell from the talkback radio and various things on social media, people don't believe them and that's why there's been a certain you know, sense of panic and it's no wonder people are terrified because what the hell are you going to do if you end up you're locked down with hardly any notice and you haven't got food in your house, you've got kids to look after? And you've got no wages coming in anymore.
0: Yeah, and I think, I I mean, I I definitely think that it's a very brazen gift um, to the capitalist class, to business owners, big and small. But I think one of the things that mitigates against people sort of getting organised and um, being more angry about that is the fact that people are thinking about their own particular situations. And one of the... Mm. Things in Australia has been a very slow response in terms of workplaces and the stories that we've been hearing about people at work, um, people in public facing roles, as they're called, you know, that you have to see thousands of people a day in some cases, like uh, public transport workers, for example, and they're just being no hand sanitizer, um, no cleaning going on. Um, break rooms with no sinks even and then in schools teachers as well talking about the fact that these are gatherings of more than 500 people um, that are still open and again Mm. teachers don't have places to wash their hands even or supplies of hand sanitizer or any of the basic stuff that if you're forced to be in a situation where you're coming into contact with people would be the bare minimum so do you want to talk a bit about some of those kind of Workplace issues—the fact that schools and universities are still open—and
3: uh, one, of the, I mean, there's a there's not as much resistance as we'd want, obviously, but there are little pockets of things happening in people's workplaces, and uh, there's a number of us who work. Uh, well, I work at RMIT University. Um, one of the issues there has been uh, trying to trying to build up momentum, firstly, to get the university to uh, commit to paying casual staff in the event of a shutdown. Um, and then, of, mm. of course, campaigning for a shutdown itself. What we, One of the things we've received is, uh, well, it's come from the government, really, but it's been quoted back at us from various vice chancellors, is that universities are what they call, quote, an essential service, which was news to us. I mean, we're not paramedics. We're not, you know, like, apparently mm. it really matters that my 9.30 film class happens. You know, this is detrimental to society if the 9.30 cinema class doesn't happen. Um, but... I think you thought
0: so, It <laughs> was
3: detrimental to my ego if it doesn't happen. But it's not. So I think what we're seeing there is that I think the state and federal governments know that, in terms of schools and universities, actually that there's sort of linchpin. You know, they they need to they need to maintain the semblance of normality uh, by keeping those mm. things going. Because if they start to break down, then everything around them starts to break down, and then the profits fall away, and you know chaos ensues. So we're finding ourselves under a lot of pressure. Uh, to keep teaching. I mean, for weeks now, for weeks, the advice from vice chancellors in the face of a global pandemic to, has been to teachers at universities, just wash your hands and keep teaching, you know, get in that classroom, keep teaching. It's only been in the last 24 to 48 hours that we've started to get some kind of movement from universities to say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll shift stuff online. You know, we'll, we'll think about that. But even that's being stalled and dragged out. Um, so it's, I think in that sense, it's, yeah, it's, it's a sort of a linchpin uh, industry. The resistance that's happening in my workplace has been really amazing, though. We've had uh, some of the desk staff, people who are sort of forward-facing, you know, a foot away from students with no barrier between them. Uh, these are the people whose students can rock up to and ask for help. Uh, some of those people on Monday morning uh, refused to staff the desks, even though the university management was saying, you have to do it. Uh, they refused to do it, and uh, which caused the management to have a crisis meeting at 9.30, uh, hadn't been resolved Good. by 3.30, so they had another crisis meeting. And then management caved and said, <laughs> oh, look, okay, fuck it. Uh, the, the desks are closed for, in, for the foreseeable future. That then spread. That was only one little pocket of the student services area. By the next morning, the gossip had got around, I guess, and that had spread right across the university. So this afternoon, mm-hmm. if you walked through RMIT, there wasn't a single uh, you know, forward-facing student support desk that any student could actually go to because all of the staff were refusing to be shoved a foot away from Total Strangers and be spat on
0: yeah I mean that that the universities are such massive employers and international students and obviously the export industry that is um, higher education further education in Victoria in particular or actually all, all forms of education it's such a massive part of the economy again that, that term that's supposed to sort of suit us all um, there's a real reluctance on the part of university managements to um, to just call it and say this is a public health risk, and that I think is even more so in the case of public schools. I mean, some private schools have already just said, "Okay, we're mm. we're shutting down. We don't want to carry the risk." Is more their thing. I think their mm. reputational damage. If you had a Geelong Grammar case of COVID nineteen, it's like a, it's like the same way they want to prevent bloody Geelong Grammar pregnancies or whatever. But um, but yeah, so. It's, that resistance to shutting public schools down is, again, this, this question that they've tried to frame in various ways over the last couple of days around um, this is actually fine. One of, it's been one of the arguments. Mm. Um, so um, mm. it's actually more of a risk if children are just wandering around the streets or in the, visiting their grandparents or having to be looked after. In fact, we're doing a service by keeping the schools open. That's been one of the arguments. Mm. Um, And then the argument that if there are health professionals whose children are at school and then they close the schools, then those health professionals won't be at work and nobody wants that, as if there's no other way of looking after children apart from putting them in schools. Mm. But that does really point to the actual reason behind Mm. it, which is as soon as schools close there will be this pressure on on workplaces. So, I mean, Louise, there's tons of industrial issues. There's the school closures, there's childcare. You can really start to see how these things linking together are a threat um, to the system because of the impact of this virus. And they're desperately trying to mitigate against all of those, again, economic um, factors that um, are starting to unravel, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, the worst case of that is in Britain where Boris Johnson has come up with some theory about herd immunity, that if all kids go and go to school, it's better that they might all get it, um, then they'll build up some immunity, which is just, well, A, it's got no basis in science. It's
0: fucking barbaric.
2: <laughs> yeah, and B, it's it um, means, yeah, let's take this one part of the population and, and infuse them with this condition and then that... The, how reckless that is because that can so easily spread. And that's just an example. They haven't even come up with some even sympathetic reason for keeping schools open. They just you know, haven't even bothered to really hide the agenda there, which is disgraceful. Um, yeah, I think like um, this crisis, like any crisis in society, it just becomes another um, forum for for the arguments of, you know, each side of the class um, struggle. And, you know, the bosses have been right, Right in on it from the get go, you know, and they've got their huge handouts, they've got the government, you know, their beck and call, and they've used it to go on the offensive, you know, amazingly against workers' conditions. So, the so many in the um, hospitality industry have said, well, the problem, the, yeah, it is a problem we have all these casuals and they're not going to get paid if we have to shut down. But the only reason we have all these casuals is because the unions demand too. Um, you know too too much for permanent um, and permanent employees permanent part-time that we can't do it Um, which is just outrageous like we have people in these shitty conditions that have put put them into jeopardy in the face of this crisis because they won't accept a low enough living standard you know in the normal times Um, and they're on the offensive but you know the problem is I think like it's really admirable and um, excellent. The workers are just organising themselves in various places because they're, they're so concerned about the situation. But, you know, the unions have not been giving a strong enough lead. And even if they had been, after so many years of absolute passivity, you can't just suddenly um, generate a collective response out of nothing. Um, and I think that's part of the tragedy a bit as well of the panic buying. It's got a certain rational side to it, but it also kind of indicates that people's first instinct isn't, well, what are we doing to to fight this, fight back and stand up for our rights in the face of this crisis together? It's, oh, my God, no one's going to look out for me. I've got to, like, at least stock up on canned tomatoes or whatever. Um, And that's, you know, that's um, one of the many, I guess, uh, unanticipated consequences of having a union movement that just hasn't been willing to take up any serious fight for so many years Whereas the fact that there are people organising in various places, especially in schools and universities, because they're in a most dangerous position, um, shows that you know there's there there is a will for that, and there and that is just a spring's eternal because workers can see like there aren't individual solutions in the face of something like this. They need to um, fight together, and pretty much, and you see every problem the government puts up, you know, like oh well the the it might keep health workers away from work, and that will jeopardise people's healthcare. That you know, workers when they come together and think about it can can respond to all that, and they are stronger for it. So you know, this um, the teachers are demanding that it, um, if there's children of healthcare workers, that special provisions be made to mind them. And you know, like, and you start to see how people collectively can solve these problems and counter the government's narrative and excuses for why they're not taking the necessary measures to protect protect us. But if people don't come together in the first place, it's, that doesn't happen and people can feel more isolated. So I think it's um, very important that it's happening. It's in a small, small scale, but, you know, you can imagine if this was on a, a bigger scale that this could be a time to win some gains, as it is, you know, the bosses of having a field day and making more more of it um, than our side.
1: Mm.
0: The of the I think there is um, there is a lot more of the kind of people wanting to help each other than the news and mainstream media wants to portray as well because it's a lot more clickbait to have a video of people fighting over toilet paper or whatever in a supermarket or queues outside a supermarket and those kind of things <coughs> and to make ordinary people look stupid and ridiculous and give that kind of impression than it is to say. People are organizing, you know, teachers are organizing internationally. Um, factory workers in Italy have organized and said, well, why Why are we producing things that are just about profit and we're in a dangerous situation in a mass workplace? We're not going to do it anymore. And we walking out, even if there's not a union officially there um, organizing any of that, all of the mutual aid groups and all of that kind of stuff that people are just kind of desperately trying to find ways to help their neighbours, look out for elderly people, people with disabilities and stuff. Like I've been invited to dozens of those kind of groups and things that people are just organising themselves. So it is that thing of the political question more broadly that the union movement as an organised movement that is supposed to represent working class people and the Labour Party for that matter as well, um, who are supposed to represent working-class people offer nothing in this situation. They offer silence. They offer a few posts on Facebook um, and that kind of thing. So, Sandra, I guess, you know, to people who are still thinking maybe the Labor Party might be some better alternative to to Scott Morrison's kind of brazen um, right-wing politics, I mean, they've just basically gone along with everything, right? Um, They're just like,
1: I don't know, you can't imagine that anyone could be worse than Anthony Albanese. Even Kevin Rudd, who was an utter total grub in government, has come out attacking them, um, or actually attacking Morrison for for not doing enough and being, you know, sort of being on the left of him, saying, you know, you have to go fast and you go hard and what does Morrison do? He goes slow and stops. Um, And I wanted to raise that... um, a couple of the things that people said, but to build on them, that the, the whole fact that there's now a tradition that no one thinks you can just go on strike, you have to have permission, you have to have ballots. It's just cut away all the grassroots organising that people do and um, is making it so difficult, but also is making it difficult because increasingly people are frightened and things are starting to close down. So I want to make a plug for the workers organising resistance in the um, pandemic, which people can find the acronym WAR on the Facebook, and it is interesting how many people have immediately started putting up things and saying, you know, I'm a building worker, what are people doing? This, that, you know, they've got all kinds of um, issues. <clears throat> There's been all the issues with the teachers because it's not just... Um, like some of the teachers, if you actually need to take time off, I know a couple of people who were in Queensland who one of them is um, actually in a terrible situation if they catch the, you know, COVID-19, if they're infected, mm-hmm. but the other partner actually has a more um, low immune system because of a condition. And so they both need to be isolated. They've got a young baby. So, you know, they just cannot afford to be um, terribly ill with it. And like trying to get the union, the uh, head of the schools, the department, even to set up a classroom where one of them could uh, at least go to school until they got everyone organised and do classes from, you know, well away from the classes um, and use technology or, or even to Zoom in, they offered to do that. And uh, the trouble is the school is so understaffed. They have no tech person. There's no ability to be able to make a flexible, you know, start to bring people in to set it up. And so, you know, they're sort of almost under pressure to keep going to uh, work. So, you know, the it actually all these things keep coming back to the, the crisis in the system always reveals what's wrong with the system and why the organising on ISI is so important, that without the unions, people are really now remarkably organising everywhere in neighbourhoods. There's Facebook groups just um, flourishing, people trying to work out how can we work together, how can we help each other. But that doesn't have the same strength as if people can identify as workers, which is why I think the war page and any organising that can happen about that can lay the future for when um As we start to come out of this crisis, people can be, you know, really wanting to actually try to get back some of what the bosses have taken away from us. But there still are things to win. Like, I haven't got all the details at my fingertips. There's so much stuff to get your head around. But there is information flooding into that uh, group and other places about the people are beginning to win some conditions that bosses start to agree that they will pay some leaves leave in so people can lock down because at one level you can create the pressure that the employers realise that people are going to start walking out mm. if they don't actually make provisions that, and some people can keep working if it's safe and if the people who need to be quarantined are actually being looked after and so they know that they're not going to lose money. So um, I think it is one of the sort of both a hopeful side of things because people are trying to do something and it reveals really why it's been such a catastrophe that under the neoliberalism and labor going along with it all going right back to the 1980s that uh, the unions have been so weakened that people really now are going to have to uh, and are starting to try to recreate some actual um, grassroots organizing but there is a plant that the united workers union i think it's here in victoria actually um did get them to close down while there were some issues dealt with and they made some gains it's a pity i couldn't have got i just couldn't find get all the material together we've been so yeah. um there's a lot yeah it's so much so that's the main thing to say people aren't just passive and yes. it's worth trying to follow what people are doing because it is quite
0: uplifting so there's a Facebook page, it's called Workers Organising Resistance During the Pandemic, so W-O-R, War. And there's also a group that people can get into through there to join in the discussions as well with their own experiences and um, Mm. see what people are talking about and organising because obviously none of that is anything you'd ever hear about um, in the mainstream media, which is why. Um, Hopefully things like this podcast and Red Flag newspaper are useful Ongoing source of information. Our
3: across the world.
0: Louise, we should probably finish. Um, and obviously, we're going to have to come back and have more episodes on this topic as things develop. But, mm. you know, for socialists right now, there's a lot of lessons being learned or reinforced in, in a lot of ways by this crisis. But, um, You know, it's so important, I guess, for us to continue to be active and not just kind of go into activist lockdown and stop doing things. What are some of the things that you would say in terms of people listening uh, that are thinking about politics right now um, could be doing or engaging with, um, you know, what should people who are socialists out there be thinking about and participating in?
2: Um, Well, it's obviously hard because... um, Politics is all about people coming together and acting together, but um, uh, socialists have faced much bigger challenges than this before and this is a surmountable um, challenge. The first thing I think people should do is get a subscription to Red Flag because it's delivered to your door um, and you don't have to touch anybody else to get your hands on it. Um, You... Yeah, you should probably get a subscription for each person in your house so you don't have to share them around. No, um, uh, yeah, because we will be continuing to put it out um, fortnightly and it is a very important way to stay um, on top of the political issues that uh, uh, will continue to develop um, around this crisis but also keep up with uh, other things that are going on because as people will probably notice the um Well, the state government here in Victoria is slipping all sorts of things through the back door while people are concerned and focused on um, this crisis, um, freeing up gas drilling and God knows what else. So, um, yeah, it's important to have something that's uh, all-round political publication. But also I think we just have to be inventive and find ways um, to come together and organise, like until they do actually shut down our workplaces, the things that people have been doing. You can read about on the war Facebook um, to not uh, yeah to try and uh, fight for our rights in relation to this, and there'll be continually issues um, that emerge that we can't necessarily anticipate. And each one, you know, it's just um, you know in a way the more intense a crisis, the more obvious it can be to people that um, what's wrong with the system. And we've come off the back of. The appalling response of the Australian government and the authorities in relation to the bushfire crisis. People are primed to feel um, suspicious or cynical about the, the government's response, and then we have this even, um, you know, more acute crisis in some ways that you know people have, it can become politicized um, as a result of. Um, but then we need to find ways to connect um, with each other. But also, like, this lockdown won't last forever. So, um, you know, as soon as it's, all oh, the, these measures won't last forever and as soon as they're over, we'll be back to demonstrating, organising. Um, and I think that demonstrating is not ruled out anyway. Obviously, it's people coming together. But all around the world, um, people have demonstrated in the face of um, measures the governments are taking that people can see are not you know, undermining their well-being, not protecting it. So um, even in China, people have protested against the government um, charging exorbitant prices for basic, uh, basic um, supplies that people need and they have no way to, you know, they're hostage to whatever the government will provide for them and have to pay whatever. They've um, protested about that. In Italy, there's been strikes. In France, there's been strikes about anything from insufficient health measures to just protecting people's living standards, wages and conditions in response to various measures. So, you know, that that's um, what we have to keep doing and, and keep using every um, everything the government and the authorities do to make, um, to get a better understanding of what's wrong with capitalism, how it works and what we uh, need to do to better fight it. Sandra, do you have any
0: final thoughts? Well, to build on on all of that,
1: which I agree with all that, I just think we do have to keep our eye on the future because there could be some times when individuals or whole layers of people can will feel quite demoralised and, um, you know, often when a crisis starts, like when the Great Depression started, the mass unemployment that just overtook the working class, it just pummeled at what were actually better unions at the time. But some people continued to fight A lot of them found it very difficult. Some of the unions were destroyed. But people did go through that process that Louise talked about of learning more about how capitalism works and it's a very radicalising experience. It's so much more real than just reading texts and, you know, people explaining the Marxist economics of the system and all the rest of it that I think you, you you just think what we've had. We've had... 2008 financial crisis, and even though Australia was protected from it to a large extent, there's a lot, of, a huge amount of issues in Australia. There's the, um, But more recently there's the beginning of a movement around the climate change and, can, you know, consciousness around that really took a huge step forward in Australia and other developed countries last year and the bushfires sort of began to bring some of that to a, an end because that was such a Terrifying um, situation, but it actually highlighted why that movement is so important and the total failings of capitalist governments that they just will not put the money in. God knows what's happening to people where they've lost their homes and everything, and now they're going to be, um, you know, dealing with the, the health crisis as well. And so I think coming out of all of that, it can be a very explosive situation as soon as people start to find that they're being employed again, that the bosses actually need us um, that, and the bosses will be desperate to try and get production going because they'll want to start making profits again. If we can, can hold together, if we can keep on having the political discussions, hopefully socialists can continue to win some arguments that people can begin to see the things we've been saying for decades actually are now making more sense than they thought that they did before out of it can come a rebirth of a movement of the working class and with more radicalism and militancy than we've seen for a long time because it is these crises that um, create those radical situations. In the 60s, everyone loves to talk about the 60s as though it's just sex, drugs and rock and roll, but actually it was because workers and um, lots of people really became so disenchanted with capitalism thousands of people became revolutionaries because of the war in Vietnam and this this is a more complete crisis of the system than it was then because there was no economic crisis at the time so I think there's every reason to keep organizing to be hopeful for the future and to keep that in mind as we struggle to cope with the uh, crisis that we have to live through uh, for the
0: next few months and one thing that just um will be an issue for organizing is finances as people become more stretched themselves in their yeah. own lives Then for activists as well, to be able to organize. Obviously we need money. So I will make an appeal for our Patreon, which is patreon.com red flag radio. Um, and you can find us there. If you can make a regular donation, even if it's just $2 a month uh, it makes a big difference. And if quite a few people have, um, jumped on board in the last week i think because they they want to hear hopefully some of what we have to say about what's going on now and we'll be able to continue to put out um with the support of those people on patreon so um, have a look at that and thank you so much liam ward louise O'Shea, sandra bloodworth um for being part of red flag radio and um we will end the show as we always do now more than ever um we have a world to win